Turn with me tonight in the Bible to 1 Peter. I want to read a few verses out of chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2. Let's hear the word of the Lord. We're going to read from verse 11. First Peter chapter 2 verse 11. Follow with me. Let's think of the words. Remember, we're reading the words of the true and the living God. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. You found the place. Second, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors, as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God, that with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be subject to your own masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy. If a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. Who his own self bare our sins in his own body in the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of our souls. Amen. And the Lord will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of the Holy Scriptures. Now my text tonight is taken from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. It reads as follows, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. And I want us to consider the theme tonight, the power of the cross. 
Now, in past weeks, we have been considering the theme, the cross of Christ. And I've asked you to think not about the wood of the cross, but the work of the cross. I haven't merely been thinking about the shape of the cross, but we have been thinking about the sacrifice of the cross. Not really thinking of the planting of the cross at the bottom there of the hill called Golgotha, but I want you to think of the person on the cross, and I want you to glory in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in our first sermon, we considered the plan of the cross. I asked you to think about who designed and thought about the cross in the first place. And I told you that long before the world was made, long before Adam and Eve came into the world, long before they fell in an estate of sin and misery, long even before the, the birth of Christ and his life and death and resurrection and his ascension back to heaven, God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit had entered into what we call the covenant of redemption. That is an agreement. And that agreement involved that the only begotten Son of the everlasting Father would be born of the virgin, take a human body, come into the world, live a sinless life, and bleed and die on behalf of all who would trust him as Lord and Savior. And of course, you want the chapter and verse, and we gave that to you, John 17 and 3, I have finished the work that thou gavest me to do. Ephesians 1 and 4 talks about being chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world. And of course, one of the key texts was the that from Revelation, the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. The, the second thing I asked you to consider was the pain of the cross. And I told you a few weeks ago that no one ever suffered like the Lord Jesus suffered the horrible death of crucifixion. And we thought about his physical suffering, his mental suffering, his, his spiritual suffering. And I said to you then, I say again, no one can plumb the depths of the suffering and the shame of the cross of Christ. And then last week I asked you to consider the, the purpose of the cross. Why did Christ die? And of course, John 19 and 30 was our text. I have finished the work, or, or it is finished. From that text, we saw that it was the fulfillment of a promised work. Christ promised the Father that he would come to earth and fulfill the work. And he didn't shrink back or pull back. He didn't pull out of that promise. He was not rebellious. He had a passion for this work. He, he took pleasure in this work. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. It was a precious work to Christ. He was not forced into it. He, he willingly and voluntarily and particularly gave himself to it. I told you it was a perfect work. It fulfilled all the Old Testament types and shadows. It fulfilled all that was necessary for the redemption of sinners. Christ kept the law perfectly. He paid its penalty in full. He, he fulfilled all that was necessary as the ground of our assurance and acceptance before God. Salvation, remember, rests on Christ's work, not on us. He's a, a not only a crucified saviour, but a complete and living saviour. He, he fulfilled all that was necessary so that we could live a life of power and victory over sin. I told you it was also a performed work. 
And on the cross, one of the great battles of the ages took place. And Christ, of course, emerged victorious. He didn't lose his life on the cross. He merely laid it down. He laid it down, he said, because he had power to take it up again. This commandment, he said, I have received of my Father. Now, now having thought about the plan of the cross and the pain of the cross and the purpose of the cross, I want us to think tonight about the power of the cross. You see, maybe you're sitting there and you might imagine, well, well, the cross doesn't help me when I'm facing problems in the marriage. The cross doesn't help me in the raising of my children. The cross doesn't help me when I'm struggling with debt to pay the bills. The cross doesn't help me in the place of work or in life at home. And if that's what you're thinking tonight, if you're thinking that the cross of Christ is irrelevant in these particular areas, I want to tell you you're 100% wrong. Because the cross of Christ it's not only the most powerful, but it's the most practical subject in all of the Bible. In fact, really, the cross of Christ is what we would, could call the Magna Carta of true Bible-believing Christianity. The cross of Christ is fundamental and central to the whole of the Christian faith. There's a story told about a preacher who was preaching on the cross and trying to paint the uh, scene of crucifixion and uh, there was a little boy there with his mother and he started to cry and the more the preacher talked he, he sobbed uncontrollably and he was sobbing so much that people could hear him and they were looking around what's this boy crying for and his mother nudged him and this is what she said don't take it so seriously son but I want to tell you it's meant to be taken seriously we're meant to be affected we're meant to take it into our mind. We're meant to let the impact of it to come into us because it is so totally relevant to the whole of our lives. So I ask tonight, what power or what impact has the cross of Christ on you? Could I suggest tonight as we think about the power of the cross to think of the power of the cross in its atonement and acceptance by God. You see, when the Lord Jesus was on the cross, and the Bible tells us Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and you know eventually that his dead body was taken from the tree and placed in the tomb, that was not the end of Christ. See, the Bible teaches that the Lord Jesus rose again bodily from the dead. I, I think of that lovely verse in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 24, and it says this in the verse 6, he is not here. He is risen. Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet with you in Galilee. He is not here. He is risen. Matthew uh, 28 and 6 invites us Come and see the place where the Lord lay. And the doctrine of the resurrection, of course, is the real cornerstone of Christianity. And there are attempts today to discredit and deny the doctrine of Christ's bodily resurrection from the dead. Think of these attempts by man. The falsehood theory. The disciples made up a lie. 
They practiced deception all the days of their life. They actually stole the body of Christ out of the tomb. They buried it in some unknown, unmarked grave. And a few of them claimed that he was alive. Well, of course, that's rubbish. Because all ten were present in the upper room in one of those post-resurrection experiences. And then, remember, after he showed himself and said, uh, handle my hands and my feet and see that as I myself. Remember the next week, uh, Thomas, who wasn't with them, uh, now there's 11 in the room. And, and, and the same uh, thing was told to Thomas. Be not faithless, but believing. Then there's the swoon theory. Oh, well, Christ didn't die on the cross. He only fainted. And in the cold tomb, he, he was revived. Now, again, that's rubbish. Remember the centurion? He took the spear when they came to break the legs of Christ and discovered he had already died. And the spear pierced his side. What came forth? Water and blood. See, what was that centurion doing? He was making sure he was dead. And he was dead. What about the hallucination theory? Oh, they just thought they'd seen the resurrected body of Christ. They were so overcome with grief that they had some sort of vision of him, some sort of mental perception of him. Well, of course, remember, he came and he had breakfast with them on the shore of Tiberias. Remember, 500 people seen him at one time. In fact, they said, handle me and see. A spirit doesn't has, has bones and body like I have. What about the wrong tomb theory? The disciples came to the wrong tomb. And there was no body there. And therefore, they made up a story. And you see, all these theories of men, the great and the good learned men, are all designed to argue against the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus. But I want to tell you tonight, the empty tomb is the real comfort of the cross. Because when you think of the cross and think of the power of the atonement and the acceptance by God, that ought to bring you tremendous comfort into your heart and mind. Way back in 2006, there was talk of comfort crosses. This was bits of wood in the shape of a cross made into a little trinket, became a sort of a, a lucky charm and People were buying them, and they were finding solace and comfort through them. It sort of reminded me a bit about uh, the Roman Catholic Church and its relics. But, but there's no comfort in a mini wooden relic of the cross. Do you know why? Because Christ is not on the cross. He's not there. It is finished. And when Christ finished the work, the work of securing atonement for his people, and was accepted by God, here's the proof. He rose again bodily from the dead. And, and that's real comfort. And, and perhaps you want to grow in your love to God. You must then come and appreciate the work of the cross. Because the cross is one of the greatest demonstrations of the love of God. Doesn't the Bible tell us here in the book of Romans? For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, for, but God commended his love toward us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ 
died for us. Maybe, maybe you're here and you want to grow in holiness. You want to die more and more to sin and live more and more unto Christ. Then you also must grow to appreciate the significance of the cross. Because if it's true that Christ died for our sins and took the guilt and punishment of our sins in his own body in the tree, then everyone who is guilty, everyone who has got anger in their heart, everyone who's full of pride, everyone who's full of jealousy, then there's healing for you in the cross of Christ. Maybe you're here tonight and you're sad. You've experienced a tragedy. You're going through trouble and you're wondering how you can cope with life. Well, I want to tell you there's comfort in the cross. And that comfort is connected to the bodily resurrection of Christ from the dead. Because Christ not only prophesied that he would rise from the dead. Christ not only proved his deity by his resurrection from the dead. Remember, it substantiated his claim who he was. But Christ, of course, on the cross, defeated him that had the power of death over us. That is the devil. And Christ was raised from the dead by the omnipotent power of God. And there's so many references that we could think about, especially in the book of Acts. Over there in Acts chapter 4, for example, in the verse 10, we read these words. In Acts 4 and 10, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, that's God the Father, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. And there's many references. You see, God raised him from the dead because God was well pleased with his work. The, the, the empty tomb was a, a message of approval and acceptance of this work. The work that was offered to the Father. And of course, it's not what we read in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 9 and the, the verse 12. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. You see, remember that Christ died in Calvary to fulfill one great purpose. And that was to atone for the sins of his people. And that is central. Our sins were laid upon his body on the tree. The guilt and punishment of our sin was, was put to his account. Young people, he didn't die to bring about the example of martyrdom theory. His death was not just an example of long-suffering and pain, not just an example of meekness, not just an example of selflessness, but he came into the world. He was born for sinners. He lived for sinners. He died for sinners. He laid down his life as an atonement for sin. And that atonement was accepted by God and approved of the Father. It was offered to the Father, and the empty tomb is proof. He came to make reconciliation. That's what atonement means. At one moment with God. He offered up himself a once and for all sacrifice to God. But it was not only to make and offer reconciliation. But it was also to offer satisfaction. To, to satisfy divine justice. Divine holiness. By the sacrifice of himself. As I've said he was born for us.
He lived for us a sinless life. He died for us an atoning death. I want you to understand that the cross of Christ is substitutionary. But the cross of Christ is satisfactory. He, he offered himself to please God the Father. And that's essential. See, God the Father didn't sweep sin under the carpet. He didn't turn a blind eye to it. He, he didn't wink at it. No, no, it was dealt with in the personal work of his son. And Peter says, who his own self bear our sins in his own body in the tree. And there's the power of atonement and the power of acceptance with God. And his cross work was also successful. And God accepted that. And the proof is the empty tomb. The second thing I want you to understand tonight is this. That we being dead to sin should live under righteousness. Here's the power of accomplishment and assurance. I asked you already what relevance or what impact is the cross of Christ upon you? If the cross of Christ is substitutionary and satisfactorily accepted by God and is successful and here's the proof, the empty tomb and, and, and there's great comfort in the cross of Christ, then, then what does it produce in us? Could I suggest it should produce a spirit of thanksgiving and rejoicing. Everyone in Christ should have a deep sense of gratitude and thankfulness that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. I believe it's important that we rejoice in the work that Christ has done. Remember Mary at the resurrection. When she was there at the tomb, she was asked by the gardener twice, why weepest thou? Why was she weeping? The tomb was empty. Christ was risen. The work was done. It was substitutionary. It was satisfactory. It was successful. God had accepted that. And that was a reason for great rejoicing. And when Mary discovered who it was that spoke to her, after he said, Mary, she cried out, Rabboni. And she held him by his feet. See, she discovered that Christ, our Savior, is a living Savior. He's, he's not on the cross. He's not in the tomb. He, he is alive. Way over there in the United States of America, in a place called Lake Michigan, uh, on one occasion there was a couple of boats out in the lake, and one boat was what they called a side-wheeler steamboat. And um, it wasn't that far from the shore. It, it was rammed accidentally by another boat. Uh, this happened in the, near the village of um, Winnetta in Illinois. And there was 393 passengers on board. 279 drowned. Uh, one man called Edward Spencer, who was a young boy, a great swimmer, he, he swam out the distance to the boat, which was about three quarters of a mile thereabouts. And he managed somehow miraculously to get 17 people to shore, one after the other. He swam out and back, and he brought people to the shore. 
Whenever he brought in the 17th person, of course, he was physically exhausted. He, he couldn't go back out again. His, his legs were like jelly. Uh, for some reason, the, the nerves in the legs gave way, and he ended up a, an invalid in a wheelchair. I want you to think of him now on his 18th birthday. He, he was asked by a member of the family, Edward, what, what's your memory of that day? That, that day then 279 people were drowned. And this is what he said. Not one of the 17 ever came back to say thank you. Remember the story of the 10 lepers? Luke 17. The Lord Jesus healed 10. Only one returned to say thank you. And that one was a Samaritan. And see, what I'm saying is the cross of Christ should fill us with a great spirit of thankfulness and a great spirit of rejoicing because the work was substitutionary, satisfactory, and successful. And the proof is the cross of Christ. In one of our hymns there, in hymn 103, which has to do with the story of the cross, the the latter verse says, Have you read that he looked to heaven and said, "'Tis finished, t'was for thee? Have you ever said, I thank you, Lord, for giving thy life for me? You see, this is what the cross should produce in you, a spirit of thankfulness and rejoicing. And I'm asking tonight, have you ever bowed your head and said, Lord, thank you for dying for me? A hell-deserving sinner. It also should produce in you a spirit of self-denial. Turn over there in your Bible to Matthew uh, chapter 16. Uh, Look with me uh, there in Matthew 16. I believe it's the verse 24. Matthew 16 and 24. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Think of these words. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What does a life of self-denial mean? It means that you don't live unto yourself. It means that you put God first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things shall be added unto you. It means having the mind of Christ. It means seeking to do the will of Christ. It means following the law of Christ. You see, Jesus said, if if you love me, keep my commandments. And there's no point in saying, I love Christ. And and not doing what Christ wants you to do or living the way that Christ wants you to do. And I've said said this publicly. It's hypocritical to say I'm a Christian, but I'm also living a life of homosexuality. Or, Or I'm a Christian and I'm a thief. Or I'm a Christian and I'm a drunkard. Or I'm a Christian, but I'm a murderer. It's incompatible. You see, what God wants must come first. And our personal desires and our wants 
Well, they're not central to what God wants. And so therefore they become secondary or, or, or further down the lane. That, that, that's a spirit of self-denial. Putting God first. There's a story told about a baby who was in a car in 90 degree heat in some town in America. The baby was 10 months old. The, the mother had accidentally uh, left the keys in the car in the ignition and the car locked automatically and she was hysterical running around the car battering at the windows trying to get them open pulling at the doors and they wouldn't open and the little child was inside and of course in that heat she believed that the child was going to die and felt that the child was in danger of uh, passing away and different people were there around the car trying to get the car open and there was a man his name was Fred Ariola, uh, and he had a hammer in the back of his jeep he, he was a, car, a man who, who broke up cars and he came and he smashed the back windscreen and um, the child was rescued. He testified afterwards that that woman complained more about the window than compliment me about saving the wheel. You see, what was more important, the car or the child? Well, well, you would say the child was, that that was paramount. Well, what I'm saying is a life of self-denial, doing the will of God, going God's way, is more important than putting ourselves first. In the accomplishment and assurance of the cross, there's another spirit at work, a spirit of true brokenness. The Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 as he started to preach that sermon in the what we would call the Beatitudes, he said this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit actually means a spirit of brokenness regards sin. It means being bankrupt before God. It means being at the place where you say, I am nothing and I have nothing and I can do nothing to recommend me to God. It's really saying I'm spiritually bankrupt and you're throwing yourself upon the mercy of God. There's another story told about D.L. Moody. He was visiting a prison in Chicago, that prison was called the Tombs, or at least that was the nickname for it. And he had a service there for the prisoners. And after the service and those prisoners who were still in their cells and didn't actually come to the service, he wanted to visit them. So he got permission from the governor and he went round the various cells. And this is what he heard. Mr. Moody, I don't deserve to be in here. Mr. Moody, I was framed. Mr. Moody, I had an unfair trial. Mr. Moody... It was this, that, and the other. But not one of them ever said, I'm here lawfully and legally. Not one of them said, I, I'm a guilty sinner and I deserve to be here. Not, not, not one of them displayed a spirit of brokenness to talk about their sins. And the last cell he went to was one particular man that had his head in his hands. And this is what he said to Moody. My sins is more than I can bear. And Mr. Moody preached to him, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. You see, there is such a thing as the power of true forgiveness. 
But you'll never be forgiven of your sin until you recognize your sin for what it is. It's a transgression of the law of God. For that's what sin is. All sin is. A transgression of the law of God. And he wanted conformity unto your transgression of the law of God. And not only do you recognize sin for what it is, but, but there must be a repentance of sin. There must be true brokenness and a hatred of it and a turning from it. The psalmist said, I was made sorry for my sin. And then when we, we recognize sin and we repent of it, then there is a reception of Christ. Because Christ is sufficient to save. Christ can sanctify. Christ can satisfy. It also involves a spirit of power and victory. The Bible teaches he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. He can make you a new creature in Christ. Old things have passed away and old things have become you. It's not what the Bible says. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away and old things have become new. And here's the accomplishment that the power of the cross makes in the life. Not only the atonement and the acceptance of God, but also the accomplishment and the assurance that it brings. It makes me thankful. It compels me to be grateful. It, it leads me to a life of self-denial. It, it, it leads me continually to have a spirit of brokenness where I recognize that I'm spiritually bankrupt apart from the grace of God. And it brings into my life a life of power and victory. And, and I'm only dead to sin because I'm in Christ. One final thing. What about the power of achievement and of an affinity? You see, what is true of Christ tonight is true of everyone who's in Christ. If you look with me at this final reference, and this could easily have been our text for tonight, in Galatians 2 and 20, the Apostle Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, I want you to understand as we close, when Christ died, we died in him. And when Christ arose from the dead, we also arose in him. And when Christ ascended to heaven, we ascended also in him. And when Christ was accepted by the Father, we were also accepted in him. Isn't that what Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 6 tells us? A tremendous reference to the praise of the glory of his grace wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. You see, if, if God the Father accepted Christ, who offered the work of atonement, then he also accepts me in Christ. And if he delights in his son, his only begotten son, then he'll also delight in the members of his body, the members of his mystical body. And therefore in him we have adoption. But as many as received him, to them give he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe in his name. But you're no longer strangers. You're a child of God. You're, you're a son and a daughter of God. You're in God's family. And as a son, you have access to the Father. Whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And, and not only in heaven have we adoption and access, but we have an advocate. Christ is there as our champion. He's there as our friend. And you see, when we suffer coldness and backsliding and hardness of heart, and the devil comes and tells you you're some Christian, you couldn't be saved. 
You don't know him. How could you pray? How could you call yourself a child of God? Well, what do you do in that circumstance? Well, you look to Christ, your advocate. And you see him there as your friend and champion. And he, 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 he acknowledges that sin. But what he tells the Father that in his name, on the ground of his merit and the value of his blood, that this individual is accepted in him. And that's how we answer every charge of the devil. And Christ's resurrection guarantees one day that we also will have a bodily resurrection. Because if the first fruits was raised, then those in Christ will never ever remain in the grave. And that's what I'm calling the power of achievement. And that all comes and stems through the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ, as I've said, is the Magna Carta of Christianity. It is central to the whole gambit of the gospel. And I want you to see tonight, as I've called it, the power of the cross. Come with me, visit Calvary. Are you there now? Are you there by faith? Can you see Christ? Do you see his atonement, his acceptance? Can you see his accomplishment? This is the power of the cross at work in our lives. This is what it brings us to. And here's what's achieved. We're accepted in him. And in him we have so much. Without him we have nothing. Are you in him tonight? Do you know him? Have you been adopted into the family? Are you enjoying this access to God? Do you rejoice and thank God for this advocate that you have in heaven? If any man sin, we've an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And because he's our advocate, because he's alive, his resurrection guarantees our resurrection. And it's all tied in to the power of the cross. May the Lord take these few thoughts and bless them to you this evening.